offer my welcome to those that have already been given. Welcome to King of Grace. We're just glad you're worshiping with us today. My name is Mike Lilly, and I am one of the pastors in training here at King of Grace. Good to have you with us today. Uh, we'll be preaching today out of Psalm 23. Psalm 23 is written by David, uh, and it really reflects a lot of uh, David's experience as both a shepherd and really his experience then looking back then as a king. So let's uh, go ahead and read from Psalm 23 today. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. For you are with me, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Amen. Seven years ago this week, I know a family that was struck by tragedy. It was a kind of tragedy that kind of comes out of the blue. It hit them like a gut punch. It wasn't the kind of like that was a hit and run sort of tragedy. No, no, this one just kept coming back around. It was the kind of tragedy that just left them wondering what next. It was the kind of tragedy that caused friends to abandon them. People in their church to really just kind of like stop talking to them and kind of say, oh, well, that must be God's judgment upon you for the things you've done. Some hidden sin that we didn't know about. It was a kind of tragedy that was just demoralizing and hung over this family. They felt branded by it. Yet, in the midst of that tragedy, God was doing something. You see, this family had been praying for change in a certain area. The husband and the wife prayed earnestly for this change, that God would bring it about, and they meant it. Literally, they asked that God would do whatever it would take. And they did mean it. The week prior to this event, the husband in this family, the man I, I knew personally, he then spent time in Psalm 23, meditating in it, considering it. When they first got the news of this tragedy, they were completely bowled over. They had no context, no framework 
with which to put this tragedy into. They didn't know how to even conceive of it. It just didn't fit with anything they understood. So they did the only thing they knew how to do at that point. They turned to God and they prayed. And as they cried out in desperation day after day, God began to speak to this man through Psalm 23. God met him as he prayed in desperation and told him, you asked for change, and I'm bringing it. And the man cried out, Father, this is not what I was asking for. And God spoke to this man and said, do you trust in this valley of deep darkness? Do you trust me to lead you to green pasture and still waters? Do you trust that I am with you even in this dark place? And man, his spirit was broken. But in that brokenness, he cried out and he replied to God, yes, Lord, I trust you. Please restore my soul. Though my heart is broken and it has been ripped from my chest, Lord God, I believe in you. I trust you. Please restore my soul. Cause me to walk in righteousness. And in this, may your name be glorified. And as the weeks went by, my friend would regularly feel overwhelmed as some new thing about this tragedy became clear. Yet time at a time, he went back again to this passage in Psalm 23 and said, Father, I trust you. Restore my soul. Gracious God, let me dwell in your house forever. Let me dwell in your presence. Let your steadfast love, let your goodness and your mercy follow after me. Lord, make me a blessing to others. But God, please, restore my soul. Time and again, God met him in that prayer and restored his soul. And God found satisfaction, or this man found satisfaction in God's presence. The lesson I learned from this is that when we trust God and follow him in faith we will be satisfied in his presence trust god follow him in faith and you'll find satisfaction in his presence we pray father today as we preach the word as this word goes forward or would you fill it? Holy Spirit, would you go forth to hearts that you have prepared to receive this word today? And would you do all that you intend to do? Would you do it for the glory of your name, and for the building of your church, for the furtherance of your kingdom? Lord, I pray it in the name of your Son, Jesus. Amen.
When we look at Psalm 23, we're given two sets of imagery. The first is that of a shepherd in verses 1 through 4, and the second in verses 5 and 6 is of a host, a generous host. Both of these images have rich roots in Middle Eastern culture, in the culture of the time, but, but really also in the culture today of the Middle East. In a different way of looking at Psalm 23, we could also say that in verses 1 through 4, it deals with us trusting and following God where he's leading, and that in verses 5 and 6, it is the blessing received for those who follow God in faith. Now, the result of following God in faith is that we receive blessing and satisfaction in his presence. Now, I want to be clear, though, that it's not just, I don't want you to think, I guess, that, that this is in any way works-based, following God. Because the scripture makes it clear that even our faith in God, our ability to follow him, comes from God. So as you look over these verses, um, remember that it is God that is the, the primary person in this. He is the, the key element of it. Everything focuses truly on God as shepherd and host. Now, as you read these verses, another thing to think through and consider as you're looking at it, just this bigger picture, as you go through the first three verses, you see that everything is a he. It's a third-person pronoun. But suddenly in verses 4 and 5, it shifts. It shifts to something very intimate. It goes to the you, a very personal you pronoun, like a conversational you that you would have with a friend. No longer this distant third-party person. God, as both shepherd and host, becomes an intimate friend of David's. And that's important as you think through, as you read through the psalm, consider that. As you go through it this week, maybe, consider that. That, that this God, who is shepherd and host, is also a very personal God who knows you, and knows you intimately and personally. So let's go in ahead and, and open up the first four verses uh, that we have here. David opens this psalm with a definitive statement, a very clear statement, that, a statement that leaves no room for doubt. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Now, David, because he was both a shepherd in his youth and a king as an adult, provides unique insight into the implications of this statement. The Lord here, it's that capital L-O-R-D. The Lord is Yahweh. If you go back in the Hebrew, it doesn't say, you know, Lord. It says Yahweh. Yahweh is my shepherd. 
Yahweh, Israel's God, their personal God, the creator of all things, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is Yahweh who brought Israel out of captivity, who defeated the enemies, the armies of Egypt, who gave Israel the law through Moses, who led them via 40 years in the wilderness to the promised land, who went before them and defeated all of the enemies they had in the promised land and established the kingdom of Israel to which David was now king over. David says, Yahweh, you are my shepherd. This very Yahweh who called Abraham out of his homeland led Jacob into Egypt with a family of 70 is the God who shepherded that family in Egypt until a family of 70 became 12 tribes numbered in the millions. He led them through many dark ways till he brought them to the promised land, a place where they could thrive and where David was now their king. David looked at Yahweh's work to gather, to lead, to protect, to nurture, to grow. And he saw through the scriptures that this was Yahweh's plan from the beginning. And he said to himself, I recognize what's going on here. The shepherd's side of him said, I recognize and I see this pattern. I see what God is doing. It is what I did as a shepherd of the sheep. And if Yahweh can do that with Israel, I want him as my shepherd. David does not mean this in any way that's demeaning. But instead, he's upholding Yahweh's foresight his faithfulness, his protectiveness, his gentleness. In the times when this scripture was written, and really in many places today, shepherds take flocks on very long routes that they have planned out ahead of time. These routes have to go, and and what they're looking for is pastures that are turning green at various times of the year, And at different elevations, they turn green at different times. So the the shepherd has to know the seasons that he's in so that there will be green pastures for the sheep. Because after he runs them through these corridors and long, dark places, there's got to be food on the other end. And there's got to be water for the sheep on the other side. So they have to know the seasons. They have to know the land. When one pasture is depleted, they have to know that they can move to the next. Well, the shepherd knows where these pastures are, which ones will be best, and when. He knows when the water will be there and when it won't. Like the good shepherd, God knows the end from the beginning. Let me say that again. God knows the end 
from the beginning. David saw this about God, and what he understood about God is actually true for us today. From before the foundations of the earth, God looked across time and saw the end of time from the beginning of it. He saw your place. Yes, yours and yours and yours and mine, every one of us. He saw our place and he mapped out your course. He did that for us as individuals. He did that for us as a church. He cares for you. He called you into his flock. And he called you by name. Not just some random individual. He called you by name. He knew you. He knew your heart. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He knew you and he called you by name. Because he loves you. He knows each of us by name. And like the good shepherd who knows the flock and where they will go on their journey, he knows the dark valleys that you're walking through. And he's leading you through those dark valleys to green pastures and to quiet waters, even though it may not feel like it at the moment. Like the shepherd, God makes sure that each destination they have will have what they need for them to be satisfied. In saying that the Lord is his shepherd, David is also comparing himself and all those who follow God to sheep. Yes, you and me were compared to sheep. So let's take a few minutes to get, to get a better understanding, to get to know sheep. Do any of you raise sheep? That's good. I was afraid some of you 4-H'ers out of PA might have like this whole flock out there and you're going to call me out and go, look, you're wrong. No. <laughs> so that didn't happen. Good. <laughs> so um, let's look at some of the characteristics of sheep to see how sh we are like sheep and how God is like our good shepherd. One of the interesting things that I, as I studied sheep that that I saw was that sheep have this habit about them that's called flocking. And that means they like to herd together. They like to get together. Sheep do not like to be on their own. In fact, sheep that's by itself gets real agitated. It's hard to work with. They like to have other sheep around them. Preferably like five or more sheep around them for them to actually do well. Um, we're not really so much different. We do best when we are with other believers. We're encouraged, we're strengthened, we're built up when we're around other believers. So God intentionally has not left us alone. Jesus in John 10 refers to those who hear his words and follow him as sheep. And he gives us the church, so that we can gather, so we can be a flock. He gives us small groups so we can be a flock, so we can hang out together, because it's good for us. Yet those, there are those who often wander. And the shepherd must be ever watchful for those 
and lead them back. Lead those who stray back into the flock. And there's a reason for this, because sheep also have a strong tendency to be followers. So that is when one of the sheep, especially if it is one of the dominant ewes or ram, start headed out, the sheep are all kind of likely to follow them along to wherever they're going. Now this can be a good thing if you're a shepherd trying to lead the flock out someplace, um, but it can have negative effects too. If you're the shepherd, you know, you want them to recognize your voice. Just like Jesus said, I, you know, they hear my voice, they recognize it, and they follow me. Well, the shepherd has that going for him, and he wants them to follow him. But unobserved sheep, a poor shepherd who isn't watching, could run into some really catastrophic events as one of the sheep starts to go head out and the rest follow. For example, in Turkey in 2006, when a shepherd got distracted, a flock of 400 sheep walked off a cliff. Apparently, they just followed the leader. Sheep, by the way, have great hearing, a great sense of smell. They even have great eyesight. They have terrible depth perception. Chances are they just didn't realize it was a cliff. <sighs> but it's true. So, it's why we need a watchful shepherd, because we're not a whole lot different. We have a tendency to follow someone straight off a cliff. And there's lots of cliffs we can get into. And we need God to be our shepherd, to lead us and guide us so we don't walk off of cliffs like the cliffs of unsound doctrine, like the cliffs of false teaching that look appealing from a distance but leave us crushed and broken at the bottom of a ravine. God, as our good shepherd, leads those who lead our flock and moves them in a direction which the whole flock can be kept safe and out of danger. Sheep have another interesting characteristic. They sh because they have no real defense, their protection is to stay together, to herd. If they smell a predator of any, any type or something frightens them, they bleat, and then they'll all start bleeding, and then they all run together and form a tight group. That's the only natural defense they have. Those who have wandered off make easy prey. A key role of the shepherd is to protect the sheep. In 1 Samuel 17, 34 through 36, David tells Saul, now David is about, Goliath has been out in front of, of his armies and has been teasing them and telling them how useless they are, how puny they are, and how puny their God is. David comes on the scene for the first time, bringing food to his brothers, and hears him say this, hears him insult not just the armies. He might could have held with that, but he insults David's God. And that is unacceptable. And so he goes to Goliath and says, I'll fight this guy. 
And Saul says, you? How are you going to do that? Well, here's his response. David tells Saul that he is not afraid to fight the Philistine Goliath because he used to keep sheep for his father. Yeah, that makes sense. But he goes on and says, and when a lion came or a bear and took a lamb from the flock, he would strike it and deliver the lamb out of its mouth. David says he would grab that beast by the beard and strike it dead. So he wasn't afraid to fight Goliath. David's an example of a good shepherd who would defend the sheep with his life. He was, in one sense, a prototype of one who would come. Jesus. We find later in the New Testament that God sends his son, Jesus, to be our shepherd. Jesus speaks of himself in John 10, 10 through 11. He says, I came that they might have life and have it abundantly. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. Jesus, as our good shepherd, would lay down his life. And in the process, he would deliver us. Much as David struck down the lion and the bear to deliver the lamb from its mouth, so Jesus struck down death and sin, delivering us from its mouth. We are desperate for a good shepherd to deliver us. We are desperate for Jesus Christ. These are just a few examples of sheep. There's a whole list that I could put together. But there are excellent reasons why David compares us to sheep. It's an excellent reason why he compares God to the shepherd. The good shepherd keeps constant watch over his flock, keeping them together, bringing, bringing the ones that stray back, caring for the ones that are sick, guiding their path, protecting them, and keeping them safe from predators. David, in his opening verse, says, The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. Now, as I mentioned, that's a very definitive statement. And David makes it a statement of fact, not only that the Lord is his shepherd, but I shall not want. I shall not want. He's saying, I am a sheep. I will follow God. I will follow Yahweh. I will trust in him to care for my needs, to provide for me to defend and deliver me. I will not be in want. David is saying in this opening statement, I trust in God as my shepherd. I know that in him I will be satisfied. Are you able to say that? Is that the faith you have in Christ? Do you know that? In the depth of your soul, are you able to say, I will be satisfied. I will not want. Practically, you and I need to have this mindset in our minds and in our hearts. 
The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want. This must translate into our hearts and minds. The Lord is my good and faithful shepherd, full of steadfast love and mercy, who knows me completely, who sees the end, my end, from the beginning. And I will trust him completely. I will go nowhere else to look for my satisfaction. That needs to be what we each are saying. I will go nowhere else for my satisfaction but to the Lord who is my good and faithful shepherd. Anything else, and we'll stray. Anything else will become prey for the wolves. And worse than that, others may follow it into our foolishness. God knows your needs. And he fulfills the greatest desire of his people. He does this by making sure we are well-fed, well-watered, and protected and guided to the right places. David writes in verse 2, he makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. God knows the flock must be fed and watered. He knows you need to be fed. He knows you need to be watered. But more than just in your physical body, that requires food and drink, he understands that your soul must be fed. That you must drink from his spirit. Look at the language here. He makes me lie down in green pastures. David says, it is God who causes him to lie down in these pastures. God understands something that we often seem to forget. Sheep do not eat on the run. Period. Sheep will not eat on the run. They won't. They will continue to run until they starve to death and fall over dead. The shepherd must bring them to a place where the flock can rest and be at peace. Where they can lay down and chew on the cud. Now that may sound a little gross, but the cud is really important to an animal like a sheep or a cow because, well, let me not go into that. Just let me, let me tell you that they chew on the cud because it helps them get the most out of the nutrients that they have. So they get the most out of what they're eating. And so God causes us to do a similar thing. He wants us to lie down in green pastures, to eat of the richness of his word, and then lie down and chew on it so we can get the most out of it. That's what he calls us to do. That's why he has us lie down in green pastures. And we won't do that if we're on the run. We need to allow ourselves to be led by God to a place where we can rest, where we can eat of God's word and then absorb all the nutrients. We won't get all that God has for us until we lie down in that rich pasture. <laughs> all right. Friends, let me encourage you to take time to lie down 
in the rich green pasture of God's Word. Let it fill your soul. Let it speak to the dark places, the empty places of your soul. Think about it. Meditate on it. Discuss it with others. Talk to it with others in your small group so that you can... Sorry, I'm having a hard time with that. (laughs) So you can discuss it with others so that you also can be encouraged in God's Word. Likewise, God knows when you're thirsty. God understands that we get easily confused and easily angered and frustrated if we're not getting enough water. Those are real symptoms of early dehydration. God knows that well, and so he leads us and his flock to still waters. He leads them to quiet waters, waters of rest. Because even as sheep won't drink on the run, they won't, or eat on the run, they won't drink unless the waters are still. God, our good shepherd, knows about sheep and he knows about us. If things are moving too fast, we won't take the time to drink from his spirit. We won't take time to be in prayer. We have to spend time at the still waters and get our fill and be filled up and filled up completely. We're to spend time drinking from the Holy Spirit, a spring that never runs dry. We are to drink from the deep well of Christ, to drink in the living water. In John 7, 37, Jesus says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Friends, let God lead you to those still waters. Drink and be deeply satisfied. How do we do this practically? How do we drink from those quiet waters? Let me tell you, it's prayer. How do we eat from that pasture? It's to spend time in God's Word practically. I don't know how you're doing that, but it takes me like 30 minutes a day. I've got got to spend time in God's Word. If I don't, I get hangry. You know, like the Snickers commercial? That hungry, angry thing? Well, that's what happens in my soul. It gets hangry, and I start getting sharp and irritated with people. And I... You know, the natural me, the the me without God starts to come out, and that's not a nice person. I don't even like him. I'd punch him in the face if I saw him. I mean, I don't like that guy. You know what I'm saying? So, So I need to spend time in the Word. I need to spend time in prayer because that's where God speaks to my soul. And I just want to encourage you to take time to do that. Find some place. Jesus says in in John 10, 27, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. The sheep follow because they recognize his voice. The sheep follow because they're not afraid. The sheep follow because they trust the one whose voice will lead them to green pastures and still waters. They follow because he is the only one who will satisfy their soul, who will satisfy their deepest need. And you get that by spending time in the Word and in prayer. Learning to hear the voice of God. So I'm going to encourage you. Get down on your knees. 
If you're feeling dry, if you're feeling thirsty, if your soul is parched, get down on your knees. Get down on your face and cry out to God. Cry out to Jesus. Cry out like the woman who demanded justice and persisted and would not quit until she was answered. Reach out in faith like the woman who touched the hem of Christ's garment because that was her only hope. Cry out for rescue like Hagar in the desert. Because surely if God answered Hagar, who did not bear the child of promise, and yet provided for her and her son Ishmael, surely, surely if he gave them life-giving water, he will give you, the children of promise, his life-giving water. Spend time listening to God's voice. Like my friend in the opening of this story, cry out to God, restore my soul. And doing these things in prayer, in meditation on the Word, and sharing what God is doing with others, God restores our soul. Let Him restore your soul. He is the God who takes tattered edges of our soul and restores them, making them like new. He is the God, the Good Shepherd, who bids the darkness of our souls to flee. He puts flight, he puts to flight fear and brings peace to the confusion of our souls. Souls that have been on the run far too long. He longs to fill you and restore you. He longs to satisfy you with the richest of foods. But you have to trust him. You need to follow where he leads. And this is what the psalmist is going to address next. He says, the Lord is our shepherd. He leads us in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. The paths of God's own choosing. And for each of us to reach that next pasture, God will take us through dark places and dangerous places at times. There is no promise. And hear this. There is no promise that the pathways between those green pastures are going to be easy or even safe. There's no promise that they will be free of pain. But we have a good shepherd who is faithful to lead his sheep. We have a good shepherd who leads us in these paths for his name's sake. He leads us in paths of righteousness for our good and for His glory to make His name known. And as He satisfies our souls, our hearts will turn to praise. From these valleys of deep darkness, as we move into these green pastures, our hearts are turned to praise. As our cries and prayers turn into praise, and shouts of joy for the one who has yet again brought us to green pastures and still waters. God is lifted high. God is made much of. God is proven faithful to His Word. God is proven yet again worthy of glory. But it is in those dark places where we often learn to trust God. 
in this passage, I'm reminded of flocks of sheep. As shepherds moved them through various canyons when I was in Afghanistan. But maybe you would be more familiar with the southwest of the United States. The canyons can be long and full of shadows, full of odd sounds. Sometimes in these canyons you'll find bones of animals, piles of bones that mark those who were not wary or wise. I've found that these canyons also get very dark very early. If you like to backpack and you're in a canyon, they get dark really early. And there's many places in these where in these canyons there's caves and there's crevices that, that could just hide in the shadow. They're in the shadow all day long, and you don't know what's in them. Things can get really distorted in these canyons, in these dark canyons. God promises to lead his sheep through those. These canyons are where God takes us and the routes we have to go on to get to green pastures. But there's good news in that because we can find comfort in the fact that God has a rod and a staff. And the shepherd in this picture that he gives us in verse 4 is that there is a rod and a staff and that there are comforts to him. And that's important symbology here. We'll take a moment to examine it. And it, when we do, we find that these two words could both be translated as stick or staff. What we have is rod and staff. Could both be called stick or staff. So you have to look at context now of where do we find this in Scripture. And where, as we start to look at it across Scripture, what we find is the word that's translated as staff is often used with kings. It's used with Pharaoh, the stick Pharaoh carry, which is a symbol of his authority. It's used like in Psalm 2 where you find the rod, the iron rod that the warrior king comes back with. There's these examples there that, that give us this idea that this talks about kingship, that it talks about those with authority. It even has messianic overtones in it when you get into Isaiah. So this rod is one of authority and power. And then the staff. The staff is one used to guide steps to, to, that they might lean on when they're watching over, shepherds would lean on to watch over their sheep, that they might have to guide their steps to bear the weight and the burden. And so we find in these two words that God, our good shepherd, has the power of authority like a king, and he is a deliverer, even as David delivered from the mouth of the lion. He is a warrior who carries this rod of authority, of protection, and discipline. But he's also one who carries this rod of teaching, or this staff of teaching, of protection, of caring. As they walk through the valleys of deep darkness, we know that our good shepherd walks with us. And he is a comfort to us. We have no need to fear. Because God, our good shepherd, is our protector. His power and his authority 
rule over all. But He is also one who cares for our soul. And He's gentle with us, even as if we were lambs. Maybe today you find yourself in that place of deep darkness. Maybe you're walking in the fear of the shadows. The shadows of deep darkness. The shadows of death. Maybe those shadows are growing deeper all around you and you don't know what might be in those shadows waiting to ambush you. What valley of deep darkness do you find yourself in? Maybe it's depression. Depression so deep that it overwhelms you in a sea of hopelessness. Maybe it's thoughts of suicide. that You just can't get around. They hound your every step. Maybe it's anxiety that is so paralyzing you can't live a normal life. Maybe yours is a different kind of darkness. Maybe you're behind in payments and maybe losing your home. Maybe you found a spouse that's unfaithful. Maybe you're just overwhelmed by a sense of betrayal. Maybe you feel truly that this is a valley of the shadow of death because you're dealing with cancer that's uncurable. Today, our good shepherd says, come. He says, listen to the words of Isaiah. He writes in chapter 55, verses 1 and 2, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You who has no money, come, buy, eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money or price. Why spend your money for that which is not bread and your labor for that which does not satisfy? The offer is to come and be satisfied. Jesus says in John 8, 12, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. Trust in God as your good shepherd who calls you to find comfort in Him. Trust in Him who leads you in deep places but gives you the light of Christ in you to light your way, to be your hope. Christ who says you don't need to fear the evil. Because He is your protector and defender. I just want to say, if you have not put your faith in Jesus Christ, today's a great day to start. If you find yourself in that valley of deep darkness, don't leave here today without placing your faith in Jesus Christ. If you are here today and you're a believer and you're in that valley of deep darkness, don't need to stay there alone because you're not alone if you're a believer. You've got a whole church that's with you. A whole church that come alongside you. But you've got a God who's promised to be your defender. Who's promised to be your protector. A God who loves you 
knows you and calls you by name. He will never leave you alone. And so whichever of those you find yourself in, the prayer can be really simple. God, come. God, forgive me for not trusting you, for not believing in you. I want you to be my good shepherd today and forever. Such simple words. And if you prayed those today, I just encourage you, come and let us know. Come find me at the end of this service. Very quickly, let me say in these last few verses that God promises a blessing. He reads in those last two, you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. It's a beautiful imagery here. It reflects the ancient customs of protection, of blessing and generosity, of a host that offers all that he has when you come into his house. I won't bore you with a long story, but in Afghanistan, this was a really important deal. You could go into someone's, when you went in in the military, in the early days of the war, it was a, a special operations campaign still. And we would go in, and all you'd have was a pistol tucked into your back. You carried no body armor. You didn't wear helmets. You went in soft shell Humvees, the whole thing. Like you were really open to attack. But what you did is you went into a village to meet with the elders. And as soon as you got into that village, you came under their protection. And they would fight to the last man, even if it was their friends on the outside that was attacking you. But you were under their protection, and their honor was at stake. When you were in their place, they fed you like a king, probably more than they could afford to. They treated you like royalty. You got the best of everything because it said something about who they were. You were under their blessing. You could have left all of your equipment out. Nothing would go missing. Because you were under their protection. And that's what Christ is saying, or that's what David is saying here in this passage. That you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. God, in his generosity, says, you're in my house. And I will bless you. Stay in my home. David says, I want to dwell here forever because it is a place of blessing. It is a place of protection. God's name is on it. It will be so. God says, rest here. Now, I've been to places where the enemies were there. I know there were guys who would have rather seen me dead. But they had to watch while we sat and feasted at the table. And they couldn't do a thing about it because of the protection that I was under because of the elder of that town. The same is true for us. We're under this protection of God. We're under God's blessing. And at some point, the enemy can only do so much. When we feast at the table, we can feast in peace because 
God is the owner of that favor. And we don't have to be afraid. Because the victory is his. The house is his. And so we receive this blessing. It is God's. And he goes on to say, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. Now I have in my head when I read that, this idea of goodness and mercy, this is God's steadfast love. God's faithfulness comes out here. That God's steadfast love is poured on me. It fills me as his child, as, as one of those that he has put his name upon. It fills me and it overflows me. And so I get this picture of like a boat, a ship, right? And, and as this ship goes by, what goes behind it? There's a wake that follows after it, right? And so I get this picture in my head that says, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. So wherever I go, I'm like this boat. And waves of goodness and mercy flow out of that because it's the overflow of who Christ is in me. And wherever it goes, it should have that effect wherever I go that people are touched by the goodness and mercy of God. And it ought to bring change to the world and those around us as those ripples. Does that make sense? I hope that's a helpful picture. Goodness and mercy follow after me all the days of my life. If I have the worship team come up. I just want to finally say if you haven't experienced that, if that's not where you're at, experiencing the goodness and the mercy of God, you're not experiencing that steadfast love. Don't leave here today without doing that, without experiencing that, without opening yourself up to that, without experiencing satisfaction in God. Maybe you have found your satisfaction in other places. Maybe you're, you look to work to find your satisfaction. Maybe you're looking to a promotion to find your satisfaction. Maybe it's in education. You think you'll be satisfied there. Maybe it's something a little darker. Maybe it's an affair. Maybe it's pornography. Maybe it's drugs. Maybe it's alcohol. But you're turning to to satisfy the emptiness of your soul. You can run and chase all your life after things to fill that empty space. But it is a space that only God can satisfy because that's how you were created. You were created to drink from the living water. You were created to eat from the richness that God has given you. And you were created to be satisfied in Him and in Him alone. So again, don't leave here today. If that's you, don't leave here today without taking care of that, without coming to grips with who God is and making Him the one who satisfies your soul, who restores your soul. Trust God. Follow Him. And find satisfaction in His presence.